Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Vivian Cameron, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Manager for the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, I'll be talking to Sarah Stevenson-Hunter, Peter Hamilton and Johnny Timpson. In this episode of the podcast, we are discussing how financial services professionals can truly service individuals with seen or unseen disabilities, considering the Financial Conduct Authority's Consumer Duty Final Rules and Guidance that are now live from July 2023. I'm joined by Sarah Stevenson-Hunter, an EDI professional specializing in disability and LBTQ plus training, advocacy, and public speaking. Also joined by Peter Hamilton, Head of Market Engagement at Zurich and the Government Disability and Access Ambassador for the insurance industry. And finally, Johnny Timpson, a Financial Services Consumer Panel Member and Financial Inclusion Commissioner. Here is my conversation with Sarah, Peter and Johnny. So hello to you all and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for the opportunity. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Looking forward to it. And so we're going to charge into our first question. So I'm going to go to you first, Peter. Could you tell us about your role as Government Disability and Access Ambassador for the insurance profession? Yeah, sure. I perhaps ought to put it in context. I mean, my role, my full-time role is working for Zurich. I work as Head of Market Engagement, and that means looking at um, how we listen to, respond to, and in places shape uh, external affairs. And that can cover a lot of different areas. Um, but one part of that role, which I picked up a couple of years ago, is that of Government Disability Ambassador, which I kind of imagine a lot of people may not necessarily uh, be familiar with or have heard of. These are voluntary roles. There are 20 uh, ambassadors. They report through to the uh, disability unit within the Cabinet Office, and they cover a wide range of um, industries that can include advertising, airports, hospitality, energy, recruitment, rail, retail, um, tourism, banking, through to universities. And within that is insurance. Um, so I am the second uh, of these ambassadors. And the first was Johnny, who, who will, um, I'm sure, add his own reflections to it. So he did a fantastic job and I think kind of brought the issues out into the fore in terms of um, just greater inclusivity for disability uh, specifically. And the aims of the ambassadors, as I say, they're voluntary roles, they're part of a day job. They are very consciously um, meant to be business leaders who can influence change within their different sectors, albeit they will learn from other sectors as well, because we do meet on a fairly regular basis to share insights, opportunities, uh, and some of the challenges that, that we face. Uh, so it's partly, I think, improving access to products and services for customers with disabilities. And it's partly, you know, how do we make, in my case, insurance a more accessible career for uh, colleagues with disabilities? And what more can we kind of collectively do to open up uh, a, a world where there are barriers that we need to, to recognize. So across the different ambassadors, there are themes in terms of the work. So one is employment, one is kind of collectively looking at research and data which might uh, permeate the different sectors. One of them is technology. So increasingly we do see the 
capabilities brought by assistive technology changing the lives of uh, disabled colleagues and customers in very, very positive ways? How best can we harness um, some of that? And the other is, is design, inclusive design. So looking at spaces, offices, um, premises, and, and more. So we'll all be looking in different degrees of focus on, on those. Maybe I could just add, you know, almost why, why would we do this though? Um, and I guess this applies not specifically to disability, but inclusivity more broadly. From a disability perspective, I think there are probably four real areas that we need to be alert to. One, one is the legal one. Um, and I think arguably this is the least important, but you know, we have to be alert to the 2010 Dis Equality Act, the obligations um, put upon us you know, just to uh, look after those with protected characteristics. <clears throat> Within financial services expressly, we've got consumer duty, which everyone will be, I think, very familiar with. But moving on beyond that, I think one of the main reasons for us to be really alert to this is just purpose of organizations, whether you're a small company of six people or a large company like Zurich of 5,000 people. I believe that both employees and customers are now looking for something different. Uh, you know, historically, people left jobs and there's some research in America uh, with a big, big survey two years ago, just coming out of the pandemic that just really highlighted that you know, people will still continue to leave their role because they want more money or because they hate their boss. But increasingly, people are leaving their roles because they want to uh, work for a company with a, a sense of values that will echo their own. Um, and they're looking for a sense of purpose uh, for a company that's doing something um, important. Uh, there, there was a survey last year, I think it was PwC, and I did write down the quote from uh, an individual customer saying, I will discontinue my relationship with companies that treat the environment, employees, or the community in which they operate poorly. So, so there are sound business benefits for being really alert to, to this as well. And I was involved in some interviews um, last week for candidates looking at a job within in Zurich the six of them, and I see all of them, when, when faced with the question, well, why, why might you uh, be interested in working for Zurich? All of them reference what they had seen and read about the, the work that we get involved in in terms of sustainability and diversity. You know, so, so it's just increasingly important in attracting talent. And, and then, of course, you've got to look at the, the broader business benefits um, of you know, consumers who, who might be disabled have a huge spending power. They, they want to be and should be part of the accessible market that we have. So 75% of people, according to Purple, the, the kind of uh, consumer charity have walked away from businesses because they're not accessible enough. There is a spending power of disabled customers and their families of something like 274 billion. So, you know, why wouldn't businesses want to be open um, to, to that? And, and then when you look at employees, employing uh, colleagues with disabilities can actually be hugely productive. It's tapping into what is often an untapped talent pool. And you've got people like JP Morgan, who had run a program and still running a program on neurodiversity, for example, observing between a 90 and 140% greater productivity rate from neurodiverse colleagues. And then finally, uh, you know, why would we do it? I think we have to, you know, you talked about actions. We have to make actions here and, and do things differently. But of course, a lot of the things we do just benefit everybody. I mean, time. I, I, I've always liked the example of the toothbrush, um, you know, hands up in the audience who's got an electric toothbrush. When I've tried this out, you know, in, in conferences, something like 90% of the people put their hands up. It was invented in 1954 by um, Philip Guy Way, who's a Swiss in, in inventor, um, basically to help people with uh, motor uh, ch challenges. So you know, here's an example of something that now is of wide use to everybody and yet was developed expressly with a kind of disability in mind. But you know, so many of these things that we might do have broader application. And I was just reminded that we launched within Zurich just a few weeks ago, um, a sensory map of our offices. We've got 36 offices and we 
designed it with our neurodiverse colleagues in mind because you know a lot of them will find some degrees of challenge in a different way because none are the same. Um, but it might be: is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it too noisy? Is it too loud? Is it too smelly? So, so where in the offices might you find spaces that best suit the way that you want to work? Um, and you know sometimes that will change, of course, over the, over the course of the day. But of course, it's not just neurodiverse colleagues. Um, it's a benefit for uh, colleagues going and experiencing the menopause, for example. You know, just, just it's a very simple, pretty cheap thing to do. And I think you know, one of the things to to really stress is that so many of the accommodations we might make for um, disabled colleagues are really cheap. You know, costing less than hundred pounds. I think many people think um, it's, it's going to be expensive for me to to, to employ somebody. Um, it absolutely isn't. So you know, I, I think that th those would be the the key reasons to be really serious about thinking of the importance of uh, being more accessible as employers, but also as providers. And that's really insightful and some really good uh, learnings in there. And from your, your perspective, um, and you shared about your own organisation, has the insurance profession improved in the areas um, that you've discussed over the last few years in, in your view? I think it has, yes, is, is the quick answer. Have we done enough? No. Uh, so the, there will always, I would say, be more to do. I think Johnny absolutely kickstarted this kind of momentum with a lot of the, the, the really good work that he did. Uh, and just to pick a couple of examples, uh, there will be many customers who will believe because of the disability they had, they can't get insurance. Um, and we know that that's not the case. You know, uh, Sometimes we'll have advisors who aren't sufficiently specialist um, because they'll be focusing on other areas who um, won't necessarily easily know where to turn. And so what we've seen over the last few years is an increasing willingness to signpost for people who might specialize in pensions or investments, but maybe not protection, which can be more complicated. They'll signpost to a, a new breed of um, insurance protection specialists who absolutely know how best to place business uh, and get cover for uh, customers with, with disabilities. So I think that's been really positive. We've got for those uh, customers who may not have an advisor, there is now a signposting service that Bieber have set up where you can uh, basically be signposted to a panel of, again, specialist providers who know how best to place uh, this kind of business. So, so there's some positive examples um, there. I think from the employment perspective, we're seeing a lot of good work. Um, I spent the last few weeks finalizing Zurich's disability confidence submission. So we're, we're what's called a disability confident leader. And if, you know, again, people wanted to say, well, how do we get involved in this in, in more detail? It's a government scheme. Uh, there are three levels of it. You can be a, a committed employer, um, a disability confident employer, and then a disability confident leader. And, and, and there's a kind of gradation of requirements and expectation there. There are some challenges. You know, some, some people will say, uh, you know, it, it could be enhanced in some ways. My own sense is it's really important because it kind of gets it on the page. It gets people talking about disability um, and it shows how you can tap into to talent pools, how you can get that greater sense of kind of engagement across the, uh, the organization. And it's a really powerful way, I think, of motivating, you know, again, uh, and teaching and helping managers within companies to just be better at um, meeting and supporting disabled colleagues to thrive. So, so I think from an employment point of view, doing a really good job there. I think, and Johnny may talk more about this because he was a founder member of um, a network called GAIN. So again, it's worth being aware that um, the vast majority of disabilities are hidden. Um, you know, we have a disability um, symbol, a wheelchair, but I think it's something like 8% will, will have a wheelchair. M many other disabilities will be less visible. So GAIN is the, the group for autism insurance um, and neurodiversity, which 
is a network across insurers, which is doing a great job in just in terms of raising awareness, creating um, links across firms, creating pathways to jobs, um, uh, helping with toolkits, helping with um, reviews of how uh, you stack up against your, uh, your your peers in terms of good good practice. Um, we've got lots of it, you know, increasingly employee resource groups, which will be common. Um, and in fact, Sarah did a fantastic job coming to uh, one of ours um, at, at Zurich a couple of years back. Now, you know, talking about that intersectionality, we had a, a kind of two of our resource groups come together. So our pride and our disability groups coming coming together. Um, so it's important to be alert to um, you know not simple categorizations, but uh, you know that that intersectionality piece. And I think more broadly, insurers are looking more and more at rehabilitating customers, but also prevention as well. So, so historically, we've just been um, providing financial indemnity against you know loss of income or whatever it might be. More and more, I think there is a real focus on how do we keep the nation, our customers, our employees healthy in the first place. Wow, that, that's just a huge amount of work but, and really, really interesting and, and great for you to share. So, coming to Johnny now, um, just building on what has been shared by Peter, looking at financial services as a whole, how are we performing in dealing with clients with disabilities, both seen and unseen? Oh, well, thank, thank you, Vivian. Thank you for actually having this call as well. And it's it, this is a timely call that we're, we're all having today because at uh, uh, you know, as, as we're meeting here recording this, this uh, we're, we're four days beyond Economic Abuse Awareness Day, and we're f- well, four days away from uh, International or you know, UN International Day of of Persons with, uh, with with Disabilities. And the reason I kind of link both of those actually is that uh, someone with a disability is about two and a half times more likely to suffer domestic, economic and financial abuse plus coercive control than an able-bodied person. And and certainly the issue of equality, diversity and inclusion for disabled people and tackling economic abuse are, are kind of issues that I know that are on the agenda for the uh, the uh, the Chartered Insurance Institute, and I applaud you for 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 championing uh, th- these issues. Um, I'd like to kind of basically build on the, uh, the, the everything that, that, that Peter said, really. And um, I, you know, I, I came at the, the, the disability investor role uh, relatively easily because my, my mother was disabled all, all of uh, her life. Uh, I, I have got a, a genetic condition which basically flares up with presents itself in terms of uh, arthritis. My voice is a bit deeper today because it's also asthma. And I'm having a, a, a phase at the minute, um, and I'm also autistic. So, uh, so it, you know, I had a particular reason to to really engage the industry, um, and it happened towards the end of my career uh, around. How can we ensure that the, the insurance industry and profession, a stress profession, does does basically uh, mirror the uh, and better serve the UK population? And that's important because we're looking at something odd for about 24% of the working age population, slightly more, I think, now, looking at the DWP fund resources survey uh, of the entire population that, you know, that are living day in, day out, and in many cases working. Um, and that's important to stress that given some of the political rhetoric of late with uh, a disability. And as Peter rightly says, about 72% of, uh, of disability is, is, is non-visible. I think the, the other uh, 
issue that, that Peter mentioned about prevention is quite key too, because but 80% of disability is acquired as we age. And the average age of acquiring a disability in the UK is about, is about circa 52, 53. Now think about that for a minute. 52, 53, that's the prime financial responsibility and liability. In many respects, you know, the, the nation, you know, the, 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 this nation is really dependent on sandwich carers, if you like, and uh, and uh, the, the, the 53 year olds are, are right in the middle of that that sandwich generation um, who've got who are, who are basically starting to be a bit more responsible for you know for older siblings or or, or parents uh, with care needs, but equally have got especially given the financial crisis we have at the minute, um, you know are, are continuing to uh, to support. Um, Many of the, the children who are no, I suppose, no kiddles really to, to 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 some extent. So this is this is an important issue, and uh, given the, uh, the, the 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 charter uh, requirements that the CII has, it is important that we we mirror as a profession the population that we serve, and to re, to do that, that means we have to employ people with, with disabilities, we have to support the career progression of people with disabilities, and I firmly believe if we do that. We then ensure that the, the the products and services of today can be can better meet the needs of of uh, people with disabilities. But the products and services of tomorrow can be inclusive by design. Um, they, they, they can be much better informed with lived experience input. And I think, as Peter alluded to earlier on, actually, and if you get it right for people with disabilities, you get it right for everybody. But disability is a very much um, a drop curve issue. You know, it's uh, it, you know if you focus on getting it right for this segment, get it right for everybody. And if you look at you know when we do talk about about EDI, all industries, but particularly ours, has taken a very siloed approach so far. You know, we we've had big focuses on on um, on gender, we've had focuses on on ethnicity. Um, Disability basically has not really been has not really featured. But what we we have failed to really embrace is intersectionality and realise that doesn't matter what age you are or what what gender you are or what ethnicity you are um, you know we all present with a cocktail of characteristics um, and in many cases you know we, we we'll be ticking a number of these these boxes so this you know for, for me it's it's important that we 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 do take this leadership role in in, in becoming the, you know the the sector of the UK economy that, that leads by example on being a career destination of choice for disabled people, and but importantly, making sure that our products and services of today and tomorrow work far better for them as well. But you asked me, so going back to your, your question, you know, how are we performing? Well, I've just finished a piece of work with the, um, the University of, uh, of of Bristol and the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. It was a twelve month long study. Look, I mean, it's entitled the the financial well being of disabled people in the UK. It's led by Professor Sharon Collard, and I think it's fair to say that you know the the, the financial services industry has made some progress. A great deal of, of work still to do. Looking specifically at the insurance sector, we we are trailing the banking sector by some way. Uh, and I'm conscious of the work that the the diversity project is doing in the investment sector. I I'd kind of argue that we're we're trailing them 
too. And let me emphasize, I, you know, I fully support the work that Peter is, is doing uh, in, in, in doing far more than I did actually in campaigning for our sector to sign up and join the government's disability confidence scheme. Um, it's actually quite interesting actually. I think there's about 20,000 firms uh, are now members of the disability confidence scheme, but you would imagine that, you know, it's the insurance industry is the insurers, the, um, the, the occupational benefits of, uh, of of employers across the UK, that we would quite naturally be playing a leading role at all levels within the, the confidence scheme. We're not far from it, actually. There are some standout firms like Zurich and others you know, that, that are members of the scheme and are at leadership level. But frankly, every insurance firm, and it doesn't really matter how, how big or small you are, should aspire to be a member of the of the Disability Confidence Programme and frankly, should, you know, should, should aim to rapidly get to uh, get to the top level, level three, but I, and I think the other reason that, that that this is now important, of course, is that we've we've just uh, with, within the last couple of weeks had the the recent uh, FCA consultation uh, on. Uh, uh, EDI, and again, um, I, I really support that because I think uh, you know the, that did really embrace intersectionality, uh, which which was which was great to see. Um, but it also basically put sort of comment, particularly on larger firms, to start reporting on the number of people with different types of characteristics that they have in their business. Where are they in their business? That starts to get us having conversations about where do we want these people to go? How are we going to help them to get there? And in doing that. It also naturally follows that our products and services should be more inclusive and, and accessible too. Uh, I'm conscious that that, uh, uh, that 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 FCA consultation is going to close quite quickly and closes on the 18th of uh, uh, December. So I don't I urge, urge everyone who's who'd be listening to this go and go and respond to it. And if you want to uh, see what what our response looks like, uh, we've just done. I, I set up Gain, the group for autism insurance and university. We've just done the Gain response. So if you want to go in and have a look at what we've done and copy and paste, adapt it for your own purposes, go do that. I'd uh, I'd urge you to uh, urge you to do it. Going back to what Peter said about, about Gain, um, when I was doing the disability role and I was encouraging firms to to think about, to, I was dispelling trying to dispel myths about uh, uh, access to work scheme and uh, the cost of, of reasonable adjustments. But I was also doing some work to inform what was the, the government developing disability strategy. And I, I, was, I was quite keen to look at what were the areas in the insurance industry and profession that, that really were underserved and um, in terms of you know of access to careers and career progression support, and there were really three standout for me, and let me share what those are. Uh, the primary one was was neurodiversity, and being autistic myself, I had a vested interest in this. Um, so, which is why when I've completed the public appointment that, that Peter now holds, I with co some colleagues I set up again. So, so it's wrong to say not for not for profit. Let me just describe it as not for dividend. Um, support hub for the entire industry to make sure that that, that you know we, we could better support people with the newer diversion enter the industry, progress in the industry. We could better support people who had new newer diversion partners and, uh, and and children. We we have just appointed Sir Robert Buckland um, uh, MP for Swindon North um, as the the uh, our president of of Gain, and that's important because Sir, uh, Sir Robert is leading the government's review of autism and employment, which is sponsored by the Prime Minister and Mel Stride, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. That's going to report in January. 
because we have a big neurodivergent employment gap in the UK. Um, we've done a number of insurance roundtables to share what works um, and elevate what works to better inform Sir Robert's work. I can't give too much away, but I think I think it's fair to say that the there's a huge expectation that the insurance industry will be asked to play a leading role in improving access to products, services, but importantly, careers and career progression for neurodivergent people coming from from that review. And you know, and I'm, I I welcome that, and we should step up and uh, and embrace that. And uh, you know, I, I thank Peter, you know, for the for the great work that he's done, and equally the CII for uh, for supporting the work that we're doing again. But the other two issues, Vivian, are interesting because the, those really spoke to women. Uh, one of them being women women that were perimenopausal and menopausal. And the other one was women that had um, uh, C. disease and or endometriosis. I say and or because it takes about 10 years to get a firm diagnosis of having one or, or the other. Um, something like about 10% of, of, of um, insurance colleagues that, that, that fed into, in, into my, uh, my research were women who were suffering from endometriosis and celiac disease. And they were... And here's the thing that that's quite a debilitating. It can be quite a debilitating condition. It's not strictly speaking a disability, but it's a long-term condition, and you know, and and as such, it can be. In fact, fact should be regarded as a disability with people entitled to access to to adjustments. And the same goes for the you know you for for um, I guess for people that are perimenopausal, menopausal. I mean, um, for some people, you know. That stage of life can can be quite disabilitating, and could ensure that they have they have access to 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 adjustments. But as the, given the industry and profession that we are, and the large number of women that work in our industry at all levels, it's a matter of course we should be supporting women with um, thrive no matter who they are or what age they are. And we should be supporting them thrive in our industry and profession. I'm doing some work on, on specifically on those issues now with the University of Edinburgh Business School supporting Healthy Aging at Work programme. Now, we'll be reporting shortly on this. Um, and uh, we're, we're hoping to we, we, we have, we have a session in Edinburgh on the 5th of December. We'll be having sessions in Manchester and Newcastle early in the new year. We hope to be able to... Uh, uh, to, to bring our research findings down to London. Ideally, we'd love to work with the CII in doing that and having some sort of forum where we can, you know, we can share our, our research findings. Because uh, as I say, you know, the, the, these issues are, are, are particularly pertinent to to women that work in, uh, that work with all of us as, uh, as colleagues. So we've made some good progress, but we have far, far to go in really being uh, the, the inclusive industry and profession that I think we'd all aspire that, that we should be. Uh, it's made a, uh, raised, raised the issue of barriers and uh, uh, given the focus that we have on customer vulnerability right now, let, let me just kind of uh, talk about that. As someone who, who has a disability, um, um, the last thing that, that, that I would want to be is automatically uh, identified as, as being vulnerable. So I think it's important as an industry and profession that we realise that uh, what makes people vulnerable is not the, the health condition or disability they present with. It's the barriers that get in the way that we 
tend to present as an industry profession when they apply for jobs. Uh, they, they, they try to work in workplace environments, be that offices or hybrid environments at, at home, or they try to access our, our products and services, be that, you know, face-to-face, online, uh, or just looking at the, the types of communication that uh, uh, medium that we use, you know, be that you know, be that uh, you know, face to face, be that uh, paper, be that online. So I think there's merit in in I think everyone uh, not only reacquainting themselves with the requirements and of the Equality Act, but but equally embrace the the social model of disability. And what the social model of disability basically says. I also refer, by the way, to the social model of of vulnerability. But what the social model of disability basically says is that it's uh, it's not someone's health condition or disability that uh, that disables them. It's the very the very fact that society, uh, employers, product providers cannot provide them with the the appropriate means to uh, to either uh, take up employment or buy products and services. So, you know, the, these barriers are, are the, the kind of ones that we, we need to think about. So, so think about, you know, the, uh, the, 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 these types of barriers are physical accessibility, digital accessibility, communication issues, uh, complex documentation. These are the barriers that, that, that really do disabled people. These are the barriers that actually make people vulnerable to not just disabled people. Thank you, Johnny. And um, just pulling in some of the things that Peter's mentioned earlier and just some of the things that you've talked about, how are we getting on as employers? You know, we've talked about sensory areas in offices. We've talked about looking at products and the like, but how are we getting on as employers within our profession um, from what you've seen across the profession? It's a it's a bit of a mixed bag, and and uh, for me, and I'm not just saying that because he's on this call, but Zurich are the exemplar in our industry profession, and have been for quite some time, and not just on disability, you know, f- frankly on um, on uh, on all dimensions of, uh, of of EDI, and I would look, I, I would basically say to to all firms, take a lead from uh, f- from Zurich, but I think the you know my, my, I think my ask of of the CII because you know there's, there, there's no competition issues involved here, um, and this, but the CII I think is probably the, the the best independent body to to basically collate, share, and elevate best practice such as you know that you know that that from Zurich and uh, and, and 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 other firms. Great, thank you. And hopefully that's helped a lot of our listeners who are employers. Um, so thank you, Peter. Thank you, Johnny, for your input and sharing what you see across the uh, landscape of our profession. So now I'd like to bring in Sarah. Welcome. And from an external perspective, someone looking into our profession, where do you feel things have changed for the better and, and what further work needs to be done? Thank you so much. It's great to be on this podcast and I'd, I'd, I'd really echo a lot of what Peter and Johnny have said already. <clears throat> but from an external perspective, I think for me, focusing on those, those barriers that Johnny mentioned, I, I like to talk about the ABC of sort of barriers and issues. The A is attitudes. And I think not, not just for the insurance industry, but for society and, and, you know, the world more generally. Luckily, attitudes towards disabled people have been changing. You know, Johnny mentioned the social model of disability. It's really great that 
that's quite well known. That's the model that's used moving away from just focus, focusing on that sort of medical diagnosis, you know, what's, what's wrong with you, but more to, yeah, but just because I, in my case, can't see, it's not the fact I can't see that's the barrier. It, it's, it's the fact that we live in a world that's so dominated by people who can see. So I think it's really great to see that attitudes towards disabled people have been changing. I think it's really great that employers, you know, we, we, we've heard great examples of Zurich. We've heard Johnny talk about things like access to work, things like, you know, their areas of support. So it's great that attitudes are changing. It's great to see ways in which employers are trying to address the needs of their disabled employees, their disabled customers. Although what I would say, one of the, one of the biggest challenges is, so in my area, the world of visual impairment, I remember working for a, a major charity for the blind 30 years ago, and the statistic that was quoted is of those blind or partially sighted people who can work, who are working age, who are qualified, competent, there was a 75% unemployment rate. And it shocks me today that here we are sort of 30 years on, and that's dropped, but that's only dropped to 74% unemployment rate. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that the insurance industry, the financial service industry can solve that problem single-handedly. But I think, you know, Johnny and Peter, they've touched on things like disability confident, um, touched on good practice. But I think whilst attitudes have changed, we still have a long, long way to go towards seeing disabled people as people that, you know, we, we can employ on our organisations, that they can not just do a good job, but do a great job. And that, yes, they may need adjustments and they may need support. But if you give them the right environment, if you provide the support, then they will thrive. And, you know, Peter mentioned the stats earlier. You know, it's, it's an untapped area. There's, there's huge issues these days with, um, you know, recruitment and, and retention. So the whole disability market is, is an area that just... There's so much untapped potential. So that's the attitudes. From attitudes comes behaviours, because after all, how we think about a certain issue or a group of people determines how we behave. Again, I would say, you know, those behaviours towards disabled people, be that employers or be that service providers, have changed. They are changing. But I think there's still a long way to go. You know, it's really great to see the focus on vulnerability, what makes people vulnerable. Um, I would agree with Johnny's comments about, you know, just because I am disabled, you know, totally blind, I also have a type of arthritis. I don't necessarily see myself as vulnerable by default, but it does make me vulnerable and it makes me vulnerable from the behaviours of others. There's assumptions they make about what I may or may not be capable of doing, um, the sorts of things I may or may not need. It, it's interesting that um, Peter talked about the role of specialist advisors. I remember growing up, so my dad was actually an insurance agent in those days when people went out collecting the premiums. And, you know, I, I very much grew up thinking that, well, insurance was really just something you had for when you got ill or got sick. And if you were already sick or ill, well, what what's insurance got to do? It's all just a bit of a... So, you know, it's all just a bit of a scam. Now, obviously, that's that's not right. But I think as disabled people, we have seen 
And there is still that feeling that the insurance industry is just there to sort of, you know, profit on misfortune and misery. Luckily, those attitudes are changing. It's really great to see this focus on vulnerability and broader, you know, the broader environment. But I still think there's a long way to go. So that's the A and the B and the C. And it's really great we've touched on this already is that whole thing of conscious inclusion or or a lack of. Um, it's really great. We've had examples of the sentry maps of officers. It's really great. We've talked about um, specific issues around neurodivergence. But for me, if we really want to tackle the barriers for disabled people towards you know, being employed in certain sectors or accessing certain services, products, we really have to look at that area of conscious inclusion, of, of inclusion by design. It's no good thinking, I'm going to design a website for my company for this new service, this new product, and you design it and then think, ah, okay, um, oops, is it accessible? Now, you might think, well, of course we don't do that, sir. You know, we've all got guidelines we'd adhere to and everything else. But honestly, as a, as a consumer, the number of websites and things I come onto that say they're accessible, and yet for me as a screen reader user, I'm like, well, you say you're accessible, but you know, have you actually tested this? Have you worked on this? And can't remember which which my colleagues mentioned earlier, but it's true. You know, if I come across a website, if I go to a branch or make a phone call. And I feel somebody's not really understanding or at least appreciating my needs as a disabled customer. I'm, I'm going to not, I'm, you know, I'm not going to not bother with them. One very quick example. I've recently switched banks because why not? You know, why shouldn't I? But for me, yes, I looked at issues around customer service for the bank I was switching to. But one of the things I also did was ask some of my blind colleagues or, you know, people in the blindness community, I'm thinking of switching to this bank. Is the app accessible? Is the website accessible? Now, I shouldn't have to think about making a choice about a, a service provider based on whether or not their service is accessible. But still, in 2023, with all the wonderful progress we've made, that's that's still a consideration. So I guess if I was, I was going to give a scorecard, I would say, um, you know, great progress but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes. Yes, understood. And Sarah, continuing with you, we've mentioned that the FCA's consumer duty is out in the profession and insurers and financial planners need to be more aware of any disabilities their clients may have um, to ensure that they're providing the best value and good outcomes. You mentioned your own experience just now, but do you feel this is happening regularly and what work needs to be done? I think it is happening. I think, you know, we've seen on this call examples like Zurich, but, you know, I'm sure there are many other good examples out there. But I, again, I would still say there's a lot of, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, both, you know, at company level, at governmental level, at societal level of looking at the specific needs of, of your customers. It, it, and what's, what's been really great on this call, and I would say this is a positive change, we've mentioned the word intersectionality a few times and i know intersectionality has come a bit of a, a buzzword in the edi world but really it just means that you know we are people we're made of up of complex identities experiences and i think what i do like about that phrase vulnerability 
is it focuses on a lot of different angles. So, for example, I've talked about my blindness. Um, also, a lot of the work I do is on the intersection of disability and LGBT. So I came out as trans 10 years ago. What was interesting for me is somebody who was blind and trans navigating the world of gender transition, therefore having to, you know, switch bank details and get insurance and go through all of that. I would say it, it's really great that this, is, this focuses on, well, we haven't just got the disability in one corner and my trans identity in another corner or my ethnic origin in another corner. It's looking at that broader perspective of, okay, these are the challenges for disabled people, disabled customers. However, as we've already heard from some examples, things that might benefit disabled people may also benefit trans people or those people who are neurodivergent or women or, or whatever. So I think what I'm probably trying to say is it's really great that we're starting to see people as people and not just consumers that, you know, we're looking at one particular aspect, but we're, we're looking at the broader perspective of, of a person as a, as a consumer, as a, you know, a potential customer, but we're looking at, oh, okay, so what's their lived experience? What's their life situation? You know, have they got any health issues? What's their family set up? Um, you know, we've, we've, we've had COVID, we still have COVID. That's, that's just shown us that it doesn't take much to come along and change somebody's life. And that just has a huge knock-on impact on every part of somebody's experience and existence. Yes, absolutely. Well, finally, we come to our last question that I'm going to put to all our panellists. And just to ask, where would you recommend our professionals go to access information, knowledge and advice to either begin their journey so you know there's some still venturing out on this um, area or if they're already started to develop provision of the best value and good outcomes for disabled clients seen or unseen considering consumer duty and if I could come to you Peter first. Thanks. I think there are just so many places you can go. Um, and that's not always been the case. I mean, I've been in the industry 40 years. You know, when I started, you waited for a magazine to come along once a month to kind of pick up on a lot of the industry um, issues and opportunities. So a huge wealth of places to go to. I think, you know, and the point's been made, starting with just being curious, being empathetic. Uh, I like Sarah's point about you know, just seeing people as people. I think as a management skill and attribute will be, you know, we talk about being familiar with technology and more and more uh, going forward. But that kind of just broader empathy, I think, is going to be increasingly uh, important for us, us all. So where do we learn? And I think there's an obligation on us, I believe, to kind of be learning every day about a whole range of issues. Uh, so, so at one level, you know, it's just talking to people with lived experience in, in relation to disability. And you know, how do you do that? There's a whole range of things. You know, so for example, from a personal perspective, I just follow any number of different people on, on Twitter or exit now is because I, I kind of hear it kind of secondhand as it work there. So, so you know, any, if you have an interest in that, there's just no shortage of places you could go to. Um, one of the things that GAIN introduced was uh, the concept of mentoring. So I'm mentored by um, a colleague with ADHD 
you know, we meet once a month. Um, she, she talks me through kind of a r- range of issues just in terms of how the condition impacts her. You know, and there's simple things that I just wouldn't have known without that kind of conversation. You know, so for example, ADHD drugs right now are very short in supply. So, you know, that has a very material impact on her ability to do her work. Suddenly everything becomes 10 times harder. I wouldn't have known that. You know, so, so, so having that ability just to imbibe and um, learn from others in your own organization because you work, you know, we're one in five of us have a disability of di- different kinds. So there will be people you can learn from directly. I think if you wanted broader areas to look at, for example, there's a very good website, uh, the government's own website on disability confident. If anyone wants to talk to me about that, you know, for example, because I'm absolutely in a positive, we should be, as Johnny echoed, um, doing more to get more companies involved in it. I'm very happy personally to speak to anyone who wants to, to sp- speak about it. The British Disability Forum uh, has got a website there with a huge amount of resource. So, so, you know, surveys on things like how do you make reasonable adjustments? You know, what are the kinds of things you need to go in? You know, so much of that is just readily and um, easily accessible. So I think there's there's a lot of places you can turn to that there'll be colleagues within the industry. I think one of the changes I've seen in that 40 years has been just a greater curiosity, a greater willingness to, to learn um, and a greater willingness to do things differently. Uh, you know, the point to be made several times, we've got a long way still to go. But my sense is that broader progress is uh, is warming up. And I think now what we've seen is both um, customers and empl- you know, potential employees will vote with their feet. If you're an organization who uh, doesn't take account of the importance of you know, that, that diversity of experience um, and interest. Thank you, Peter. That's really, really helpful. And Johnny, uh, your thoughts on the question? Yeah, kind of really um, build on what, what Peter said. But um, thank you, Sarah, for your comments, by the way. I mean, I, it's interesting, you know, you, we, we, we talked about, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, intersectionality, attitudes, behaviour and culture. My shorthand for all of that actually is belonging. And I think, you know, I think my ambition for the insurance industry and profession is that this is somewhere where, you know, people can come and belong and have great careers and thrive. But equally, it's somewhere where consumers can come and talk to us about their risks, feel that they belong and that, that that's a burden shared. Um, so I guess that, that's that's kind of my asks of, of the industry. But, uh, you know, building what Peter said, actually, I mean, you know, in terms of who can you contact? Well, Lived experience is really important. So you know, speak to consultants like uh, uh, like Sarah. There are fantastic charities such as the Retail Institute for Disabled Consumers. Now, I just worked with them for a year within my work I've been doing with the University of Bristol. Um, what they do is they they have a they have about two thousand. Um, disabled people from across the UK, all ages, all ethnicities, um, all different backgrounds. And um, you can work with them and test your propositions and test your thinking. And they, they will choose a panel of represented panel of disabled people and they'll give you feedback. Um, so I, I would advocate everybody work with them. I mean, if you haven't got a, a charity partner or uh, you know, um, think about getting one, but my ask is that uh, when you cho- approach charity partnerships, the old days were all about, you know, uh, coffee mornings and raising money and raffles and stuff. It needs now to be an, a, a value exchange where your organization actually looks at what what the need, the support needs of that, that charity are and, and uh, you know, you, you use some of the, the skills and the experience you've got in your business to, to help that charity. And, but importantly, vice versa. Uh, I think that's that, that's really important. So I think there's a 
there's a, a kind of proper partnership with charities that uh, that, we, that we you know need to embrace. And I think that's something I think that uh, we need to double down on with uh, the, the requirements of consumer duty. Um, other charities would be uh, Disability Rights UK. You get them at disabilityrightsuk.org. Uh, if you're in Scotland, Inclusion Scotland. Um, but if you want to you know, find out more about uh, neurodiversity, um, come and talk to us again. And then you can get us at gaintogether.org and or give me a call anytime. Just to build on Johnny's point there, insurers getting involved uh, financial services with charities. We've just launched in February this year a three-year program with ambitious about autism. Um, and just to echo that that point about it's a two-way street. You know, so, so we are providing funding that is helping transition in schools because you know one thing we do know that it that that move from school to the world of work can be really tricky. Something like eighty percent of us collectively are employed. If you're disabled, it's near a fifty percent. If you're a neurodiverse, it's near a thirty percent. So there's an absolute need to to help with that kind of move to work. So, so we're putting some funding in for that and working with them on that program, which is kind of re- rewarding and enriching for everyone involved in that program. But separately, they're training all of our staff. You know, so, so they're using their expertise to just broaden the um, awareness of uh, the different presentations of neurodiversity to you know as many of our staff as we can get to go along to those. And the one other kind of free and easy resource I should have mentioned, for example, is the ABI um, that they've got free training available for mental health. You know, which was developed in conjunction with a firm called Right Step, so a group of experts on mental health. So again, just to really reinforce, there is so much good free stuff out there and you know, the, the importance of that, link, linking to that and that broader voice of lived experience can't be um, uh, overestimated. And, and last but by no means least, Sarah, what would you like to share? I mean, some great information. There, there is just a plethora of information out there. I think there's almost too much in some ways. Uh, you know, if you look at the employment side, talk to your employee resource groups. Um, talk to them about what they feel the needs are. You know, the, the things that Johnny and Peter have mentioned. I mean, obviously, there are places like myself, um, simplyequality.com. We are a social enterprise. Um and it's about breaking down barriers for disabled and LGBTQ plus people. But, you know, look, there's, there's, there's plenty of people out there. Do your research. Um, I, I think it really is that the time has come to, to listen to that experience of your, your customers, your employees. And OK, you know, you, 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 you can't solve everything overnight. A lot of stuff around disability inclusion is quite straightforward, but some of it is much more sort of structural, technical, so it's going to take time. But I think as long as we we adopt that growth mindset as individuals, as employers, as companies, and so long as we're, we're, we keep going on that journey, I think, um, you know, some movement is, is better than no movement. Yes, we'd all wish it was a lot quicker and there's a lot of challenges to be met, but there really is no excuse these days for, you know, not doing what you can with whatever resource you've got to make things better um, well for disabled people more generally. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Sarah, Peter and Johnny for joining me on the podcast today. It was really insightful getting your views and how the financial services professions are meeting the needs of those with disabilities. So thank you all for your time today. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the chance to be involved. Fantastic. Thank you very much, CII. And thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio.
For more podcasts and useful links, please visit the journal stop CII stop CO stop UK slash podcast stop. Until next time, goodbye.